phones, it's perfect, right? So uh, I'm, I'm dead serious, guys, come on over, we'll get a barbecue going and, uh, and let's see what kind of fun we can have. So uh, come and talk to me later because I didn't say this officially because that would create insurance issues, so this is just a random idea. Um, all right. This is going to be a difficult sermon this morning, and I'm not sure how some of you are going to cope, and that is because this is going to be a positive message. I don't think I have a single rebuke in here, Um, and some of you are going, oh man, that's not Sam's style, but anyway, that is what is happening. So to begin with, I just want to make a little bit of a disclaimer. The way I'm going to preach to you this morning is literally the worst way to preach, Um, So let me explain what that means. The role of the preacher is to clearly explain the Word of God as God intended you to hear it, right? That's, That's the role. The best way to do that is to preach exegetically, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible, like we just spent two years in John doing, because then you're getting the Word continually in its context, in the way that God intended you to receive it. If that is not the main teaching of your church, then you should probably look for another church. Um, That should be the absolute staple of how a church presents the Word of God. The next best way to preach is what we call topically, which is we preach an idea, a topic, but we should attach that to one single passage of Scripture, again, to make sure we're in context, and that's good to do occasionally. The weakest form of preaching is to preach a topic, but not tie it to a single passage. Instead, to pull a verse or multiple verses from all over the place to support our topic, which is called proof texting. Uh, And it's the least authoritative, worst way to preach, and that's what we're doing together this morning. Um, How's that for an intro, church? Um, Yeah, anyway, what I'm I'm just telling you this outright. We don't preach like this regularly. We won't preach like this regularly. There is a reason this morning that we are doing so, obviously, and it is to set up the scene for the rest of the Gospel-Shaped Mercy series. The rest of the series will be topical, but it will be tied to passages. So it's better than this. So, But I have a very strong reason I'm doing this this morning, and I think you will understand why as we go. So to begin with, I want to say to you, Shalom Aleichem. Any response? Aleichem Shalom. Um, anyway, I thought Ron McClay might be here and yell at me this morning, because but this was an opportunity. Anyway, um, if I was to ask you what Shalom means, what would you say? Peace. Most of you would say peace, and you are partially right. Shalom does mean peace, but it means far more than that. It's one of those words that we literally do not have an English equivalent for, and so the best that we can kind of use is peace. If I asked you to define peace, you might simply say an absence of conflict, which is true enough, but the word shalom means a lot more than that. Maybe the best way I can kind of get this across to you is if I said, define love. And you could give a really simple definition of love and say, to like someone a lot. Well, that's true, but it means a lot more than that, doesn't it? If we went to say 1 Corinthians 13, 
it will begin to put meat on the bones of what love means, doesn't it? Love is patient. Love is kind. doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Suddenly, love is taking on a weightier feel when we put some meat on what that word actually means. And this is the case with shalom. It's not simply the absence of something, conflict, but it's also the having of something. And that's important when we're understanding this concept. In all of the various roots of and variants of the word shalom, it carries the idea of wholeness, of health, of completeness. Not just the absence of conflict, but of having fullness. That's caught up in this idea of shalom. And that's what makes the world so beautiful. If I was to wish shalom upon you, I'm not simply wishing that you are not in conflict. I'm wishing that you are at peace with God and with man, that you are whole and healthy in body and mind. I truly wish shalom for you, church. That's the concept. Working through the scriptures, this root word of shalom is used in lots of ways that help fill out the depth of the meaning associated with the word. So I'll give you a few. Solomon offers peace offerings in the temple. Shalom offerings to God. A debt is made good through a peace payment of money. Vows are completed through peace offerings. Victory is associated with peace. Indeed, peace and prosperity are often paired in economic freedom. Think of the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. You shall go to your fathers in peace. The idea of dying peacefully, of dying in a right way. So we can begin to see there's lots of ways that this idea of shalom gets carried throughout the Scriptures. Again, to get deeper into this idea of shalom, you can look at the covenants in Scripture between God and man. We could look at Isaiah 54, Ezekiel 37. You can look them up later. Like I said, I'm just pulling a lot of verses out today. If you want to write them all down, listen into the recording and you can and go and work through. Or... In your Gospel Shaped Mercy book, there's a sermon note section, and you could write them down. There you go. All right. The covenants have mutual obligations, where we as people are required to do certain things. We are required to act in certain ways as part of the covenant with God. If you look at those conditions, what we will see in the covenants, and this is really important, is the tying together of justice, judgment, and wholeness that equals peace. Let me, let me just repeat that. Listen to this. You will see the tying together of justice, judgment, and wholeness which equals peace. That's an important concept. It begins to put meat on the bones of what this word shalom actually means. Let me give you some more scriptures just to fill this out. This, I told Sano that I had 400 and 
I can't remember what I said, 400 and something verses this morning and I expect him to be able to put them all up here with no prior warning. So um, I'm backing him out. I'm going to go quick, all right? Psalm 34, 13 to 14. Listen to what it says. Psalm 34, 13 to 14. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. See here, shalom, peace is not something that simply happens. Seek it and pursue it. How? By doing what is good. By turning away from evil, by not lying. These things result in shalom, in the peace, the wholeness that we are told to pursue. I'll give you another one, Zechariah 8, 16 to 19. I can see a couple of people writing these down, good on you. Zechariah 8, 16 to 19. These are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true and sound decision within your city gates. Do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor. And do not love perjury, for I hate all this. This is the Lord's declaration. Then the word of the Lord of armies came to me. The Lord of armies says this, The fast of the four month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth will become times of joy, gladness, and cheerful festivals for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. You get the idea of what it's all linked together. Speak truth. Make true and sound decisions. Don't plot evil in your hearts. Don't do perjury. I hate this. And when you don't do those things, when you pursue good things, the result is joy, gladness, peace, shalom. You starting to get the idea? It's not just about not being in conflict. It's about a fullness of life. A wellness of life is shalom. The notion of peace here is joined with another root word, meaning true or complete justice. Shalom in this passage is also joined with the root word for truth. So peace, truth, and justice are parallel terms. Peace has a content, a depth that equates with justice and truth. Relationships of equity, of fairness. Now this is, you begin to see, this is a huge, strong, weighty, biblical concept. The problem we often have in evangelical churches is, we look at the social gospel that is out there in the world. We look at the fact that they would say that all you need to do is do good for the hurting and you have fulfilled the gospel. Is that true? No, it's not. And so we look at that and we go, the social gospel is prevalent in the world and therefore we turn our back on doing good to people. I'm sorry, church, but that is the throwing of the baby out with the bathwater, right? We cannot turn our back on the social gospel and therefore ignore the social implications of the gospel, right? Because they are linked. 
Because there is a social gospel that is false, does not mean that acts of mercy and love are not included as part of the gospel. Good works prepared in advance for us to do. If we're a person who might work out at BYLC or maybe we're a school chaplain, and therefore we think, well, that is the good news. I do a job that's helping people, therefore I'm living out the gospel. Wrong. The gospel must be proclaimed, it must be taught. The death and resurrection of Jesus must be spoken. You cannot fulfill the gospel simply by doing a good role. Wrong. Are you living there for Christ's glory? Are you telling people how they can be saved? If you're not and you're in one of those positions, then you're a false teacher because you're in a position that should proclaim the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus and you are silent. That's not the gospel. However, if you are someone who believes the good news, believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but do not think it overlaps into defending the rights of the oppressed and helping the poor, then likewise you need to be challenged as well. The gospel includes both elements. Let me continue from the Scriptures. Psalm 85.10, faithful love and truth will join together, righteousness and peace will embrace. Right? The two join together as partners. Isaiah 32.17, the result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quiet confidence forever. Righteousness will lead to peace. The effect of righteousness will be quiet confidence forever. Now we know that the ultimate peace and righteousness comes from Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment. But if we are saved, if we are being changed into the likeness of Jesus, It's hard to imagine that we could live a life without caring for the broken, isn't it? Whether it's Jesus feeding the 5,000 hungry people, whether it's Jesus healing people suffering from all kinds of illness, whether it's Jesus welcoming in people who are despised in their age like tax collectors, we see Jesus opening up to and serving the needs of others to create Shalom. Yes, he tells them to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand, but these things are not mutually exclusive. If we are made into the image of Christ, we will begin to live out the life of Christ. Okay? That is what we need to understand. Now, I hope all of this is expanding your mind a little bit on Shalom. Now, of course, it doesn't mean all of those things whenever you greet someone and say shalom, but I hope you begin to understand the fullness of the word. True shalom is justice, righteousness, fullness, fairness, peace. A deep and abiding peace that fills our hearts, minds, 
and the world in which we live. Right? Is this the world you live in? Shalom? No. No, no, it's not. It was meant to be. That's the picture of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? True peace, true provision, no one lacking any good thing, a fullness of relationship, Adam and Eve, and with God is the picture of the garden and the world that God created. It was very good. God walks in the garden every day. Get a load of this, farmers. We're a church full of farmers, right? There were no weeds, by the way. That was part of the curse, right? Thorns and thistles, none of that. By the way, no irrigation because every day water would rise up that was required from the ground and water the food that you needed and then it would go away. It didn't flood. So you didn't have to irrigate ever. You didn't have to deal with any weeds ever. How's that sound? It'd all be too lazy, wouldn't it? No. The reality is all you had to do was actually go and harvest the produce of the land. That was the work that God gave us. What a beautiful picture. It wasn't that you weren't doing anything, but the work was a joy. You just got to go and harvest the fruit of God's labor, right? What he created. That was the picture of shalom, God with us in a world of fullness and flourishing. And there was no sickness, there was no unhealthiness. It was perfect peace and fullness. And that is shalom. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And then the story of Adam and Eve is one in which they rebel and sin enters the world. From the fall, we so quickly move from the perfect shalom to the murder of Abel, the flood, the division of people on the earth, fractured at war and without peace. The world of shalom that God created ceased to exist. And we may experience pieces of it from time to time. But the world that we live in is not the shalom that God intended. If I was to ask you this question, I wonder how long it might take to answer. Could you tell me what things in the world currently don't equal the shalom that God intended. Taking the fullness of the word that I've just explained to you, just a few, just a few things in the world don't add up to it. Every corruption, every corrupt court, every corrupt politician, our failed health, failed systems, inequality, racism, injustice, it's all not the shalom that God intended. However, however, one thing we know for sure is shalom is coming again. Amen? It will come and nothing can stop it. We know that because Jesus is the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace, and he has won it eternally. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, the government will be on his shoulders, he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
peace. Jesus is seen as the bringer of justice, as the vindicator. His kingdom will be established and sustained with justice and righteousness. At the moment, he has given his peace to the church. The church with Christ as its head is where peace, shalom, is meant to reign, where we should not see inequality, where it tells us in the Scriptures that all parts of the body are equal, right? The church is where we're meant to see that now, the kingdom of God evidenced in our love and unity in the church. But the day will come when Christ returns and shalom will reign on the earth again. Oh, church. We know that Jesus died on the cross to make peace between God and man. By paying the penalty of our sin, he has fulfilled all righteousness and justice. He has met the penalty of our sin so that we can have peace. And one day, that's going to be fully realized. Anyone find that difficult to imagine? What a world of true shalom will be like? I find that tough. Our world is so full of lies and sin and brokenness. To imagine the world that God is giving us through Jesus, it's incredible to behold. Here's a taste from the book of Revelation, right? This is Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, just got to pause there. Sea was no more. For all you fishermen like myself, sea represents chaos and sin. It was something that was uncontrollable. And so here, what it's saying is that uncontrollable forces will be done away with. doesn't literally mean there will be no ocean. Just really important point, right? Um, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for a husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Do you know what that is? That's the fulfillment of the shalom that God intended in creation. And it will happen. God will fulfill what he designs. So what was intended in the garden is coming because of the finished work of Christ. The day will come when it will be made new. And on that day, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more deceit, no more injustice, no more inequality, no more of those things will exist. Instead, we will be with God and we will have shalom. See, I find that hard to even imagine. Our world is one where we know pain. Time's coming when pain will be finished. And peace is what we will know. So in summary, what does all of this mean? It means that peace, shalom, embraces the notion of the restoration 
of creation. So bringing it back to justice, truth, and righteousness. Peace is a blessing and a sign of blessed new creation which will fulfill the first creation. Peace is from the Lord and is the Lord's own work. Peace is the restoration of the divine plan of creation and the promise of our life to come. So the world was created to have shalom. It will be fully restored one day by Jesus. But the critical question this morning is this, do we have a part to play now in creating shalom? Is this part of the Christian mandate? That's really where we want to go this morning. In the New Testament, we don't have the Hebrew word shalom, naturally. We have a Greek word, irene, right? This is the Greek word that replaces it. It appears in nearly every book of the New Testament, and it describes an intentional calm and a relationship of goodwill between God and humans. Most frequently, it describes a social reality, a state of reconciliation and wholeness among a group of people. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14.33 ESV, we read, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Reading this verse takes on the deeper meaning of our understanding of Shalom. God is not a God of confusion or instability, but He is the God of calmness, peace, of wholeness. Sometimes in the New Testament, this word is used to uh, talk about a lack of, of conflict, but most often it's used to include that broader vision of human flourishing. In the New Testament, it has an emphasis, obviously, on God's saving work through Jesus, but it has the idea of true human wholeness. Ephesians 2.17, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near, which leads to Ephesians 6.15, and your feet sandal with readiness for the gospel of peace. Remember what we've been talking about, the fullness of that word, the gospel of peace, the gospel of wholeness, the gospel of justice, the gospel of righteousness, the gospel of peace. Church, can I tell you, it's this understanding which has led us to have an orphanage in Fiji, where the gospel is proclaimed, but children are cared for. It's why we have a school for children who have not quite fitted into mainstream schooling, where the gospel is proclaimed, but teenagers are given an opportunity, right? They are not mutually exclusive. It's an understanding of shalom, which means not only do we proclaim the good news, but we also fight for people to have a whole life. It's why Christians are the ones who even started free schooling to begin with. It's why Christians started charities, fought against and stopped slavery. 
Church, the question for you this morning is this. Do we keep on celebrating William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery, which we should do, but do we keep on celebrating what he did and never live it out in our own lives? Do we simply as Christians say, wow, William Wilberforce, wonderful man, stop slavery, hallelujah, good for him, and ignore the plight of others today? It's the gospel that led William Wilberforce to do what he did. The fullness of shalom, which not only proclaims the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also helps people live a full life. I leave the closing with the words of Jesus, followed by a little bit of commentary from D.A. Carson for you to think about with our understanding of shalom this morning. One verse from Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Think about what we've understood this word shalom to mean. Carson. Jesus does not limit the peacemaking to only one kind, and neither will his disciples. In the light of the gospel, Jesus himself is the supreme peacemaker, making peace between God and man and man and man. Our peacemaking will include the promulgation of the gospel. Promulgation simply means spread. Will include the spread of the gospel. It must also extend to seeking all kinds of reconciliation. Instead of delighting in division, bitterness, strife, or some petty divide and conquer mentality, disciples of Jesus delight to make peace wherever possible. Making peace is not appeasement. The true model is God's costly peacemaking, his sacrifice. Those who undertake this work are acknowledged as God's sons. In the Old Testament, Israel has the title sons. Now it belongs to the heirs of the kingdom who, meek and poor in spirit, loving righteousness yet merciful, are especially equipped for peacemaking and so reflect something of their heavenly father's character. There is no more godlike work to be done in this world than peacemaking. That's Carson. Church, as we undertake gospel-shaped mercy for six more weeks after this, can I challenge you to recognize the call of God on you is to make shalom. That will include the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus, And it will include bringing wholeness and fullness of life to the people within your sphere of influence, whatever that may look like. That's God's word. Let's pray.